The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Be here with you and delighted so many of you are interested in doing this. Uh, it's um, for me the idea of refuge in Buddha Dharma Sangha is uh, uh, has a lot to do with uh, our heartfelt involvement with Buddhism and Buddhist practice, um, that we uh, wholeheartedly are involved. Uh, as you'll learn, the, the expression that's used for going for refuge, the word going, is gachami, and it means, um, literally means a number of things, but most literally means to walk. And what I like about this idea is that we, it's something we bring our whole selves into, or through, or with. It's not like you bring your little toe and kind of just like Buddhism is only like part of who you, you are, but it's all of you, you want to include as part of it. But by, uh, by, um, by inference, uh, the ancient word kachami also refers to, uh, to understand. So to go for refuge also means to understand something important. And it also means uh, to have an intention an orientation and intention for one's life and what one wants to do. And I say that just as a few starting words uh, to um, uh, the kind of strong sentiment I have sitting here is the memory of the many times over the decades that I've been in gatherings with people who have had their intent set on practice. Uh, one of the strongest uh, memories that comes to mind right now is um, when I practiced in Burma. It's a very large monastery. And they had um, a women's meditation hall and a men's meditation hall. The men's meditation hall was smaller than this room here. And the women's meditation hall was bigger than this whole building. Um, and uh, the women's meditation hall was more stately and it was in a beautiful big building and and I'd pass it by every day when I went to my meals for, for the one meal of the day, two meals of the day we had. And, um, and because it was a hot climate, um, it, the long sides of the building were made of uh, doors that opened. And they were always open. And inside would be sitting 500 women meditating. It's quite something to see. And women, when they meditate in Burma, sit with great dignity. They sit up very, very straight, very tall, and, um, and to see the intentness of these 500 women, all of them intent on practicing, was very inspiring for me. Or times when I've been in Thailand and monks would gather, sometimes at night and just uh, sometimes during the day, and sit in a group, huddle together, listening to the teacher or chanting. And you, I could feel the intent that they had to practice and to follow the path. And I've been, you know, been to monasteries here in America and in Japan and going on retreats here, elsewhere. Uh, at some point, the gathering of people, there's a feeling of, you know, there's an intention to follow a path, to, to engage oneself on something. Maybe what they practice, maybe what they understand is maybe a little bit different from everyone, but um, that everyone has the same direction. And that direction is um, commonly uh, referred to as um, the Buddha, Dharma, and the Sangha, the Triple Refuge, or it's sometimes called the triple gem. And um, so during this, uh, these uh, days here, these next three uh, Wednesdays, I'm going to talk to you about, and we'll engage in a process of exploration 
of refuge in Buddha, Dharma, and the Sangha. And then um, uh, the fourth week, I guess we, I think we might skip a week. I mean, it's the fourth week, anyway, the 14th of May, we'll have a refuge ceremony for those of you who'd like to be part of that. And, um, the, um, and part of refuge ceremony is not only refuge in Buddha, Dharma, and the Sangha, but also is um, the precepts, the five precepts that support all this. And so during these three next three weeks, we'll uh, somehow touch on the three refuges and also the five precepts. And so you can kind of explore it and think about it and kind of make it personal. Because the hallmark, or the, what, the, what the refuge most means for me, or one thing it means is that it's a personal relationship with the Buddha, Dharma, and the Sangha. It's something that, something that resonates in you in a, with what those, rep, what those are. The Buddha, Dharma, Sangha are something, they represent something, they symbolize something. And so whatever kind of, whatever they mean for you, uh, it, uh, hopefully what it means is it resonates with something that you know inside yourself or you intuit in yourself. And so what we're doing in taking the refuge ceremony is we're uh, uh, acknowledging, you're acknowledging something which hopefully is already true for you. Uh, that uh, you have an orientation, an understanding, something you know, something that you're interested in, some direction you want your life to go, that somehow resonates, somehow is in harmony or echoes or, repre- or is represented by these three uh, ideas, Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. So it's not my idea that uh, I'm going to give you refuge and you're going to like do something which is you know, like make a commitment that, you know, that's not who you are, but really it's much more, maybe it's a commitment, but it's much more to give uh, voice and expression to something that resides in you. And, um, and so this is a personal choice, the path of liberation. And so it's a personal choice that if you want to do this refuge ceremony. And to, and to some degree, it's a personal choice that um, what you take this to represent. Um, there is no um, pope in Buddhism. There's no, no one who's going to tell you this is what it is. Um, and so part of the awkwardness of being a Buddhist and part of the blessing of being it is we have to kind of find our way with all this and it has to be personal in some way. Now if you say that personally what it means to take refuge in the Buddha is to take refuge in marijuana because that's where you really find it for you then, um, you know, I think it doesn't quite work for me. You know, I don't think that's kind of what we have in mind here but so there's a limit to the personal side of it but the... um, but I'm hoping that, that you know, you, you have a, this, we explore uh, the personal connection you have with these things and, uh, and reflect on these as we go along and, and um, maybe have more questions about it than you have answers. So, um, and also when I was coming down here today, I was thinking about a uh, little bit my own history with Buddhism and... Um, and, um, you know, for me, uh, what brought me into Buddhism was not Buddhism per se, but rather was I started meditating. And I felt a sense of uh, integrity and sense of well-being in the meditation that I wanted to, uh, I wanted to have in the rest of my life as well. I, I felt that, why should I just have it when I meditate? Uh, you know, it would be nice if this could be something I lived with the rest of my time. And so it was, uh, I, I entered into um, a Zen community. I 
ordained as a Zen priest, I went to monasteries, I went to Asia, um, always with the intention to follow through a little bit more fully. And how do I live this fully, this sense of well-being and integrity that I felt when I, when I, um, uh, when I med- meditated? And so as I did that, then I discovered uh, this value in the Buddha, Dharma, and the Sangha. I found that, um, that uh, if it was just about my own efforts and my own understanding, that I was actually limiting myself dramatically. That the Buddha, Dharma, Sangha for me represented something outside of me or something that's in me that's not my usual self, not my ego, self-centered self, and not me as the agent trying to understand and fix and everything, but that I'm supported and guided and uh, protected by uh, some truth, some experience, some, some connectedness that I refer to as the, I, I feel very happy to refer to as the Buddha Dharma Sangha. Um, when I went to Japan to practice, um, I uh, went with very little money. I think maybe I had $200. And I, was, I went to be there for a year. And, um, and so I knew I had, you know, I was a little bit, I was kind of a naive guy. So, you know, $200 in Japan, maybe it was naive. But I had enough uh, sense that I should get a job. And so I, the first weeks I was in Japan, I lined up a job to teach Japanese in Kyoto. And so, but I had a week or so before the job started, so I went to a Zen monastery to do a seshin, a seven-day Zen retreat. And the end of the retreat, I thought to myself, I didn't come to Japan to teach English. I came to practice Buddhism, practice Zen. And um, so I'm going to, what I'm going to do so I'm going to cancel my jobs and I'm going to um, devote myself to my practice, come with me. And, um, you know, just that's what I can. I'll just do that, whatever, with my $200. And so at the, so at the end of that sashin, I was a kind of a guest, you know, at the monastery, the temple. Uh, I went to say goodbye to the abbot at Hosinji. And... Um, and the custom, you know, was no, no money had been asked of me to sit there in the seven days. And, but the custom was to give a little gift. And in Japan, you do it kind of formally. And you're supposed to give, when you give money, you give it in a nice envelope. And so I put it, I, a little bit of money in an envelope. Not very much, but I had, you know, some of my money. And, and handed it to him. And he didn't, know, he didn't open it, but then we talked a little bit. And, and he said, uh, and, and I was already ordained as a Zen priest. And I'd kind of lost my Zen teacher in America. So... In Japan, a Zen priest who has no teacher is called a ronin monk. You know, like a samurai is a ronin monk. Ronin samurai has no master. So I was a ronin monk. And um, apparently there was a, there's a, a custom of how you, if you're an abbot of a temple, how you relate to a ronin monk. So the ronin monk, is, uh, the implication is, is looking for a teacher. So he said, oh, wait a minute. And he went back to the back room and he came back with an envelope and handed the envelope to me. And later when I opened it, he gave me more money than I'd given him. <laughs> and what it was, was uh, he called it, it was train money. The custom is you give the monk a train money so they can go keep travel and look for until they find a teacher. And since I wasn't, gonna, he wasn't, I wasn't the one, he was going to help me uh, uh, to find it. So, so, so here I made this decision to, you know, to trust myself in the practice, come what may, and then the next day, I was handed money. It wasn't like a lot of money, but 
you know, with more money than I could. And that was symbolic for me of something that I've come to um, do repeatedly in my life, that every time I've trusted the Dharma, I feel like a Dharma is taking care of me. There's something about um, uh, entrusting oneself to what's true, uh, to the truth, to practice the sincerity of the intention to be free, um, the, to be committed to this path of compassion that uh, is reciprocated by who knows what. And I, I didn't know uh, what would support me, what would protect me. But uh, something did, and every time I made this choice. Now, of course, there's no those of you who are, I don't know what, experimentally inclined or statistically inclined will say, well, there was no, there was no um, you know, control group. <laughs> and Gil, you're just so optimistic. You, know, you tend to see things in a positive light and all that. But that's how I felt. I, I mean, I'm in, in my whole adult life, every time I chose the Dharma, I, uh, it seemed to work really well for me. Um, and then the Buddha, that's kind of the Dharma, trusting the Dharma. The Buddha uh, rep- story for me is, um, so I went back to Asia a second time to practice. And uh, by that time, I was interested in Vipassana practice. I'd done some of it. And I had trouble getting to Burma, where the teacher I wanted to study with was. was. So I heard that he was going to go and teach a month-long retreat in Nepal. So it was a chance for me to study with him. So I flew to Nepal. And I had some days to wait for him. And while I was waiting for the retreat to start, I just wandered around Kathmandu. And, um, and I would pass this uh, window of a kind of you know, um, Buddhist store, you know, the Buddhist statues and tankas and all this stuff. And, um, and there was a statue, Buddha statue, Buddha statue that I really grabbed me, really took me. I was really inspired by it. I would go by and stand there for a long time looking at it and looking at it and looking at the price. <laughs> and uh, I had more money then. Than two, that was the second time, right? The first time I had $200 and this time I had more money. I, I don't know how, maybe it was $300. So, you know, I had a little bit more money. But I, I, I had a, you know, I had have, and, um, and so, um, but there I was in Nepal, and uh, maybe it was $100, the statue. And I thought, what do I do? Do I buy it? Do I not buy it? Do I not buy it? And, um, and then I, um, and then I, one day it occurred to me that the most beautiful thing I know, that's you know, more beautiful than the statue, is a pure mind, a pure heart. The kind of the experience of meditating, practicing, and kind of being emptied of our, the attachments and the fears and the hates and the resentments and the greeds and, you know, the confusions that I had. And to feel, I don't know if you, you I don't know how, well you, how you feel about the language of purity, but a pure mind or a clear mind, clean mind. Um, that's, you know, to the degree to which I've experienced that, that's the most beautiful thing that I've seen in the universe, that I've experienced in the universe. Certainly more beautiful than this Buddha statue. So I said to myself, okay, rather than buying the statue for $100, I'm going to not buy it, save that money, and support someone else so they could practice. So then a day later or something, I, I, um, or that day, I don't know when it was, right around that time, I called uh, the Berkeley, I went to the telephone exchange and made my call to my, I was going to talk to my girlfriend in Berkeley. And her roommate answered and I said, you know, I asked, can I talk to Rosie? 
And, um, and he said, oh no, Rosie has gone to Nepal to be with you. <laughs> well, <laughs> Nepal is not a, you know, it's not like, you know, going to Starbucks to look for someone <laughs> and look around. You know, it was, you know, Kathmandu was already a kind of a big city by then. And uh, how is she going to find me? You know, she had no idea where the retreat was, anything, where I was, anything. But, uh, but uh, you know, not buying that... She came with even less money than I did. Mm-hmm. So, not, so not buying that statue then allowed me to support her. And so the two of us then traveled and, and made our way eventually to Burma and sat the long retreats in Burma. So this idea of... Uh, so this idea of the Buddha, you know, this Buddhist the statue uh, that represented the Buddha, he really represented something deeper inside of me. And when I tuned into that which was deeper inside of me, then it reshifted what I thought was important, what to do, what I wanted to do with my life. And I wanted to share that with someone else. And, and, then, and then, a day later, this thing happened. So how, how did you find me? Well, uh, I, bike, I biked out to the airport. And I stuck a, a notice, a little note, on the bulletin board. And uh, just before she got off the plane, she told the person in the, chair, in the seat next to her her name. And when, they, uh, when she got off the plane, he saw her name on the, on the message board. <laughs> and so, um, she, then, so she found me in the hotel I was staying at. So that's a nice story. So, um, and then the Sangha for me. So, sangha means the uh, assembly or the gathering of people come together. And in the Buddhist language, we refer to it as the um, the community of people who, there's a number of meanings. Here in the West, we often mean the community of people we practice with. Traditionally, it means um, one of two things, either the people who are monastics, Buddhist monastics, or who are, um, who've attained some degree, who have witnessed for themselves the truth of what the Buddha was teaching. So they know it from first-hand experience. This is true. And, um, and this, this one about being you know, a monastic community, uh, I think it makes some sense that that was the kind of the community that people saw as a protection, as a refuge, as a support, as an inspiration, as an example. Because historically in Asia, there, was, there wasn't an organized uh, group of lay people who practiced. It just wasn't really set up. Society and traditional society wasn't set up for that possibility, as modern society is. And so it's kind of a relatively modern phenomenon, both in Asia and in the West, to have a large group of lay people practicing. And there's a lot of people here at IMC who practice more meditation than most monks do in Thailand. So you're not monastics, but uh, many people here are very dedicated to the practice and in a way that is exemplary. And so it makes sense to, to translate the, the Sangha not just to the community of monks, but to the community of practitioners when we have so many strong practitioners here uh, to support us. And for me, uh, it's very clear to me, 100% clear, 120% clear, whatever, that um, I could not have practiced without the support of others, without the community of people to practice with. I didn't have the fortitude, I couldn't have stayed inspired, I couldn't have uh, had the examples of people who showed the way in front of me, where to go, without the community and other practitioners who were practicing. And um, one of the one, the one little story that kind of stands out for me um, uh, is uh, right now to come to mind was I was at Tassahara, the Zen monastery, 
and one of the priests there who was going to work in the in the kitchen I was kind of up kind of on the hillside looking down the courtyard where you walk across to the kitchen and he was walking across the courtyard to the kitchen and the way I saw it how he walked so maybe it was my projection but that's okay it worked for me um, was um, he was he was just walking <laughs> he was just walking and it wasn't like he was walking in a hurry it wasn't like he was walking slow he wasn't like he was you know, had an agenda. It wasn't like, I just, I saw him walk and it was like, it was like so, I don't know, peaceful or settled. It was just what it was. And it was like one of the few times in my life where I saw someone being alive and present and there was nothing extra. It was just like so simple. It was so pure. It was so beautifully empty or so no ego involved. It was just walking. Isn't that great? It was great for me. It inspired me. And it inspired me about a way to be for myself and uh, to just be, to be simple and not to going to be someone special. And It's too often that uh, Buddhists read about, read Buddhist texts and then want to become special. You know, there's the great attainments you can get and all that. And I don't know if that, I don't think that's what it's about. Another story like that for me was... Uh, so the first retreat I practiced in Thailand, first Vipassana retreat, was a 10-week retreat. It happened by accident it was that long. I had no intention to sit that long, but I'll just tell you it was an accident now. <laughs> and, um, and then, um, but uh, halfway through the retreat, uh, or somewhere early in the halfway through, so I was given a little kuti, a little hut on the edge of the monastery. It was kind of a dog patch, chaotic anarchistical place and I was on the edge of the swamp on top of the swamp actually in this cabin on stilts and there was this long plank that took me to the across the swamp onto the dry land and to the monastery there and so for some reason um, I, you know I was supposed to be sitting and walking sitting and walking practicing all day long and I was a good Zen student and you just follow the schedule and, and you don't deviate but for some reason in the middle of the day I decided to go for a walk around the monastery pretty radical and, um, and especially for a person who has a little bit, used to be when I was younger, kind of um, um, maybe a little excessive um, father figure kind of neurosis, you know, like this authority figure. So I, so I walked on to the, into the monastery and, um, and, I, you know, and who should walk by at that moment but the abbot? Busted, you know, <laughs> you know. But what happened was that, you know, he was maybe 30, 40 feet away from me. And uh, we were kind of walking perpendicular to each other. And he looked, he turned and looked at me. He looked at me like he really saw me. But at the same time, I felt like he he saw me like, like I felt like I was really seen, fully seen. But at the same time, I felt like he looked right through me, like, like he was looking at a tree or something. And there was absolutely no ripple in his mind no effect the fact that I was not following the schedule the first time I met in Tassajara the first time that I missed Zazen in the morning I overslept in Zen monastery I was convinced they were going to kick me out of the monastery I was absolutely that was it for me anyway so, so that's you know kind of my background right and so but here he looked at me and, and um, there was not a ripple he didn't he, to say that he accepted me is, is too much work but he didn't 
<laughs> he didn't accept me. He didn't because he didn't not accept me. He just he just saw me, and there was something about being seen that way, that uh, maybe because of my background and what I carried with me, that transformed me and changed me. About kind of taught me something about my projections, my stories I lived with, and again something from the inside about how it can just be simple, just be, not have to be anything. So uh, without, you know, I can give you hundreds of examples of ways in which the encounter with other practitioners was deeply meaningful for me and changed me. Um, so if I'm very happy uh, and have a tremendous feeling of devotion and faith to uh, what we call the Buddha, Dharma, and the Sangha. And, um, and uh, the idea of the refuge, going for refuge, is very meaningful for me. And, um, and uh, I feel that... Uh, as, as the tradition says, it's a protection, it's a support, it's inspiration, it's a, it expresses an intention, and it expresses an orientation for one's life. And it's possible to have this orientation be at the center of one's life. Like this is what we want our life to be about. Not just like coming here Sunday morning and just that's when we're going to be a practitioner or when we meditate or something, when we get around to it but we want our whole life to be informed by something of the central values that these three things uh, uh, represent. So with that as a uh, background, what I'd like to do is to say just a couple of more words about the first refuge, refuge in the Buddha. And um, the... Um, um, well, first of all, this word refuge in English, you know, we have refugee. And maybe that's okay. You, you get to be a refuge, Buddhist refugee now. <laughs> but um, uh, from samsara or whatever. But um, the, um, you know, it has, all kind of, it has connotations, the idea of refuge and refugee that might be a little bit negative. Uh, I don't know if the word sarana, the word Pali word sarana has the same connotations for ancient India. Um, uh, it means a support, a protection. Um, you know, so some reason we've translated it as refuge. So the uh, the first one, refuge in the Buddha. Um, and so the question is, what is it in your experience? Do you have anything in your own direct experience or your intuition that resonates with what you think the Buddha is? The statue here is a completely idealized version of the Buddha. Um, it's some artist's conception or some collective artist's and people's conception. I bet the Buddha looked nothing like that. I don't bet he didn't have a flame shooting off the top of his head. <laughs> and um, and uh, the, um, you know, it's kind, of, it's kind of an image of certain kind of human perfection. But it's meant to be a... Um, it's meant that it meant not so much, you know. You, you know, I, I am inspired by the fact that there was some person a long time ago who understood something and saw something and was transformed in some way that has uh, propelled community people down through these generations to us. That's very meaningful. I, I have a lot of gratitude and appreciation and reverence for whoever that person was. But whoever that person was. Um, also now has come to be an, uh, a representation for something, like an archetype, that represents, represents a potential and a possibility. And so it's, uh, it's said sometimes that if you bow to the Buddha, you're really bowing to yourself. 
that the Buddha statue is meant to be a mirror for yourself. So you're not really bowing to an icon, but really you're seeing yourself in that. And uh, not that you're ever going to look like that physically, <laughs> but it represents something uh, of a uh, uh, something of some some experience or some way of being from the inside out. Um, and um, so, and that's what the, uh, in the ancient texts, uh, it says that when a person has faith in the Buddha, takes refuge in the Buddha, they don't take refuge in him as a person, but rather in the Buddha, in the Buddha's awakening. So the Buddha had an experience of awakening where the mind became free, the heart came at peace and rest in itself. And that experience of awakening then is what we take refuge in. And so that's hopefully something that we either we've touched into in some ways or intuitive or gotten close enough to get a sense of that there's a different way of living, that there's some inner change of uh, well-being, of peace, of truth, of knowing that's radically different from a life that's caught up in greed, a life that's caught up in fear, a life that's caught up in consumerisms, a life that's caught up in um, identity and proving oneself and apologizing for oneself and defending oneself, that we can let go of all these kinds of ways of being agitated and let the, let the heart and the mind rest or be at peace in a deep way. And there's a, a range of experiences that people can have that kind of teach them, teach them a similar lesson like that. And that's what we take refuge in. So each of you hopefully have something, whether, you know, it doesn't have to be dramatic, um, but... Um, intuition or a hint or something very clear that you've had that somehow in your life is an experience, a way of being, an opening, uh, something you've, a touchstone that speaks to you about a possibility that you would like to enhance and develop and live by. And if you have enough time and can practice enough that uh, on the inside you can look like this archetype if you do it completely thoroughly, completely. So at the risk of talking too much, I'll give you one more story, Anal- analogy, analogy. We used to um, have our Sunday morning gatherings before we had IMC in Pertola Valley at the community center there, a big auditorium. And they had a linoleum floor with this linoleum tiles, like one square foot tiles, or 10 inch square tiles. And, um, and we'd come Sunday morning and sometimes they had parties in the community center Friday night with beer and popcorn and I don't know all this stuff and we'd come on the floor and we'd take our shoes off, right? And it'd be all sticky and, you know. <laughs> so it occurred to me one day that what if for 500 years no one cleaned that floor and the dust and the grime and the beer just built and built and built and built and people danced and walked and did all things on this floor. So all this grime got really packed in well and got shiny even and it was really good and, but you know several feet high and it got really you know diamond like hard and, and then lo and behold someone went back in the old uh, <clears throat> you know files and found some doesn't file a paper it's, it's, some people didn't know what paper was anymore but, but somebody oh yeah paper we read it and they found this paper and it said um that there was a floor, a linoleum floor with tiles. And, and so they came out with this paper and said, look, there's supposed to be tile floor down there. We don't know what tiles are anymore, but they're supposed to be there. And, no, 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 it can't be. Everyone poo-pooed it. And this person said, yes, I'm going to find out. 
So the uh, person then had to take a jackhammer. It took a lot of work because it was so hard. Went through layers and layers and layers and layers. And after a lot of time, came down to the linoleum floor. And after a lot of work, cleared out one square, one of those squares. Made it all shiny. said, look, it's a beautiful linoleum. (laughs) (laughs) And then everyone knew that given enough time, they could clear the whole floor and have a beautiful linoleum floor again. But they didn't know if they had enough time because it was a lot of work, right? So the same way, we could have some experience, some hint of a possibility, a way of being. And that tells us that if we have enough time, we, we can clear away all the gunk too and get the linoleum <laughs> exposed. And, and that's, what, that's what the Buddha represents. The, the, I don't know if the Buddha did it, really did that 2,500 years ago, did it that thoroughly, but it, uh, it represents that possibility. And for me, that's very meaningful to have that as a, as a direction to send my life. I don't need in my life to clear the floor entirely, but it's very meaningful for me. That's the direction I'm going. And so I'm doing, a, doing what I can to clear that floor, to expose it, right? And um, so the archetype of the Buddha, that image, you know, take refuge in the Buddha, I take refuge in the possibility of that direction and, and what that represents, that possibility. So that's a lot for myself, you know, and I offer you all that to try to spark something in you so that you can see what lives in you as we do this. And as part of the exploration, what I would like you to do is, um, if you don't mind, if you would maybe pair up with two other people, pair up, try up with three other other people and and then share with your two partners um, uh, why you've come to this refuge class. Uh, or what it, what it might mean for you or what questions you have or, or why you're curious about it or what it touches for you. or I want to keep it very open. So I don't want you to feel constrained like now you have to already be enlightened and explain that to your partner. Um, it, could, uh, it could be that you just uh, you, you, you intuit something, you're curious, you think something's here and you want to check it out. And, and then you kind of, because you're talking with group of three, you kind of begin exploring a little bit more why you thought to check it out, what it meant for you, what it might represent for you, what you're looking for. And so I'd like to, if you have a chance to talk with two other people, why you're here. Is that okay? So why don't you find uh, two other people to sit with? And I don't know if we're multiples of three. If we're not, if you can't find someone, walk towards the front towards me. So we'll do another three minutes, so just make sure that everyone has a chance to speak. of the contrasts to the idea of refuge in Buddha Dharma Sangha is um, the many refuges that people 
often go to in their ordinary life. The things, maybe you don't call them a refuge, but things you go to for support, things that are going to save you, make you, you know, things you kind of depend on, what you rely on. And so people rely on, for example, money or jobs or they rely on relationships or they rely on status or they rely on knowledge, opinions. Some people really rely on having opinions and they want to let you know. (laughs) And um, some people rely on governments. Some people rely... It was really uh, eye-opening to me when I was in Burma. I woke up one morning and overnight the government decided that um, all the currency, paper currency that they had, was no longer valid. I mean, you know, in America it's in God we trust, but... You know, I, I thought it was, you know, I think, you know, I knew everything was impermanent, but I thought some things you, <laughs> I thought there were some things you could rely on. I think you could rely on money, right? And so to wake up and find out that, you know, just was, you know, probably it wasn't even useful for toilet paper the way, it, you know, <laughs> you know, it wasn't very good texture. And so, <laughs> so you know, it wasn't worth much at all. And um, so, you know, people rely on all these things and uh, that are not very uh, reliable. And so the idea is that there's something about the Buddha Dharma Sangha which is reliable because it, um, it's, uh, it's not fickle, it doesn't change. It's there, kind of, it's, there's a kind of a permanence to it um, that is not there in the ordinary things people kind of depend on and want and the, the chasing after in their lives. And uh, I think that what uh, has some permanent value is that is uh, the principles um, and the practices that are behind it that point to a possibility of mental transformation or heart transformation, a change. That we're no longer relying on something outside of ourselves to provide us with safety, protections, to provide us with meaning, to provide us with you know, some value, things that are you know, changing in the world, but rather we find in our own hearts um, uh, that uh, a heart that's free of agitation, a heart that's free of fear, a heart that's free of anger or greed or hate, uh, a heart that's deeply at peace and at rest, that that is trustworthy. And the principles and the practices that point us to that possibility are portable and we can use them in any situation we can, can be in to find this deep abiding peace. And uh, so the Four Noble Truths, for example, to really understand that, those are portable, valuable refuges. We can can take refuge in the Four Noble Truths because that's portable. The teaching that if you cling, you'll suffer. And if you let go of the clinging, the suffering will go as well. That's a powerful teaching for our lives. And uh, to take refuge in that means that uh, you're constantly looking at every situation you're in, um, where am I clinging? And uh, can I let go of that clinging? Can I let go of that clinging? The, um, and it, and it, maybe, this, maybe this is the wrong thing to say, but um, e- uh, even if you become destitute and end up homeless in a homeless shelter, the Four Noble Truths still apply. It might be unfortunate circumstances, but you're protected, if you have the Four Noble Truths, from your heart and mind getting contracted. Because the, the contracted and tight and clinging a fearful heart, that's your contribution to the situation. 
And so to learn how to negotiate and, fi- and take responsibility for your own heart, your own mind, what it does, is part of what it means to go for refuge. So uh, traditionally it's said that a person who's gone for refuge fully uh, will no longer be afraid. I've never met such a person who just did refuge ceremony did that. But that's kind of the principle behind Remember, we're talking about a direction. We're talking about a possibility that we can move towards. So, so I think it's very important to appreciate this idea that something about going for refuge which frees us from fear. That's the idea. And then it, I've heard, oh, in the modern world, I heard someone said that once you've gone for refuge, uh, you have no more reasons to complain. <laughs> so now none of you will come back. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, that's an interesting statement. That uh, if there's something about the refuge, the Four Noble Truths, the, what this practice means, what we're moving towards, and that uh, we're not complaining means that you're somehow uh, uh, tying your welfare and well-being into something outside of you. And uh, if you no longer, if you, if you take responsibility for your own well-being and your own heart, then you won't, you know, you can still point out that disagree and point out that things aren't what they should be. But uh, people are not keeping their agreements or whatever, but the complaining is, uh, is uh, what goes. So now I'm curious from you, is... Um, uh, many of you d- didn't grow up as Buddhists. Some of you might have grown up with it. Um, but even if you grew up with it, there was uh, probably some time as an adult where you started being interested in the practice and interested in being involved in a way that um, maybe you didn't as a child. But do you, is, there, is there for you, it doesn't have to be, some of you are new and just checking this out, that's fine. But is there, um, do you remember a moment or an experience where you felt that, uh, yes, this makes sense. Yes, here I can start taking responsibility. Here is a practice that I can do. Here is an understanding that can hold my life. This is, this is really something that I want to support my life. Something like that. Is there, was, do you remember a moment like that or a time? And I was wondering if just a few of you would be willing to tell the group as a whole, uh, if you remember what that was. I hope the idea that we get a range of stories of what that was like. It doesn't have to be like the most dramatic time, but something. Uh, so in um, at the beginning of 2001 uh, is when I just felt like um, uh, it was hopeless that I would ever figure out how to be happy or manage to do it. Um, And um, I didn't, wasn't giving up because I knew that wasn't, couldn't be helpful, but I I didn't see what to do next. Uh, And at the beginning, so I was very unhappy, and at the beginning of the year I thought, this is going to be the worst year of my life. Uh, but there was a yoga studio in my studio, and I thought, well, I haven't tried that yet. I thought I'd tried everything else, but I hadn't tried that. And I tr- gave it a try, and I loved it, and I didn't know why. But I did. and became pretty religious about going to those classes. 
And then I kind of segued from that to reading books on Buddhism. Uh, started with um, um, oh, the author's name. It's easier than it th- than you think. Um, so, someone knows the author. Yeah, Sylvia Borstein. That was, and it was a pretty normal book. It, so I, you know, good story. So I read some more and more. And then I started found groups and started practicing, and slowly started to come together. And I remember. I remember that by the, and it was, what a relief. So about by November, I remember I was thinking, this is the best year of my life. <laughs> Thank you, Bill. right behind you. Um, I, I didn't grow up... In fact, my, my parents are funny. I, I didn't realize so much that my mother was even Catholic until her funeral. Um, <laughs> um, I knew my grandmother was because my mother would come back after that where they do the handshake and she's like, I don't want to shake hands with them. I want to shake hands with them. I'd shake hands with them. You don't have to tell me to shake hands with people. There's always kind of a funny relationship with that. And... Um, I, um, I, I later in life kind of joined 12-step and, and I got involved with the Christian church, which felt great, but it was a very emotional experience and not a very, felt good in the moment, but it wasn't very sustaining for me. And I remember um, someone bought me um, one of Thich Nhat Hanh's book on tape, and it was read by Michael York, so it was very funny. So you have this kind of Englishman speaking in, with Thai's um, idiosyncrasies, so it's kind of a little funny thing. And that got me interested in um, I remember I, um, I, in 2000, the beginning of 2005, I had a big shift in my life. I essentially had nothing. I had no job. I had no relationship. Um, I had no money. Um, uh, I, if it weren't for my parents, I would have been homeless. I was sleeping on, my, uh, on the floor at my parents' house. And I finally just took that step and, and followed that instinct. And it actually led me here. Um, and... Um, there's a peace in the I experience and it, I, I think you were the speaker that first time and there's, a, there's, a, there's something you, uh, a character you bring that I hadn't seen before in other people that I met and I've met that with many Buddhists in my life and there had been so much conflict and trouble and, and unsettledness in my life that, there's, that it's, it's very beautiful and I recently tapped that again when um, I was uh, on retreat with Thich Nhat Hanh is that I was up near the front of the walking meditation. I was in about 10 feet of him. And I realized in that moment, I could just hang out with him <laughs> the rest of my life. I wouldn't have to do anything. I can just like hang out with that in that energy. And that is just so sweet and so nourishing. And that's, that's why I'm, I'm back for the refuge again is to um, really continue to dive deeper into that. And make that it your own. such a gift. And make it yeah. your own, hopefully. And to be able to bring it to the people around me, I realize what a gift it is to be able to, to be that, particularly in, in uh, life is like the ocean. It's sometimes calm and sometimes it's not. And in the moment when it's not calm, to be able to be that rock is such a gift. Uh, Very nice. Thank you. Thank you. And, yeah. Um, for me... Uh, I'm not a young lady. I'm an old lady. I was in college, and I was reading. I don't remember what I was reading. Uh, when you took a class in philosophy of religion, 
they had a, a special library in the department where it's just a room with a lot of books and a table in the middle. And they'd say, go in there and read these things. So hopefully you'd get there when someone else wasn't trying to read them, you know. <laughs> anyway, so I don't know, I was, I was reading something, and I thought, you know, I want to do this with my body. I really want to do this. I don't want to just read about it. Before that, I was thinking, God, maybe I should try and learn Sanskrit so I could really read this, which I didn't do. <laughs> but um, I didn't know anyone else who was doing that. I mean, now it's, it's so ordinary, but at the time, I didn't know anyone else who who felt that way. You know, in fact, it was kind of, people were kind of suspicious of it if you tried to do it. You were supposed to study it, you know. I'd say later, reading what the bodhisattvas do, and they do this, and they don't do that, they always seem like very mature people, like very grounded people. <laughs> like, like they weren't, you know, flying off at the handle, you know. They, were, they had a kind of grounded view of things. Like you'd want them to be a good friend, or to be your auntie, or your uncle, or something, you know. Uh... The other thing I was telling the people in my little group, um, I was in Japan, and I had a kind of troubled relationship with a temple where I wanted to be able to live there, but they kept saying, you can come for the one-week retreats, but you can't live there. And then I lived in a temple connected to it, and there's all this stuff going on. Uh, However, I wanted to continue practicing with that teacher. And um, at the same time, I was starting to feel like, God, I'm getting a headache from all this stuff. And... Uh, then I had another Western friend who went and did a, a one-week retreat there. Uh, it's a temple with uh, Japanese and Western people there. And afterwards he said to me, Anne, I can see why you keep going back to that place. These two Western people who've been there about 20 years, they're so beyond self, I feel like I could reach my hand right through them. And I understood what he meant completely. So it was kind of like in the middle of this kind of messy, neurotic thing, I, the, the, we both saw something very clearly, and that was inspiring to me. I felt better. I felt like, okay, maybe I can get neurotic about this. <laughs> maybe it's worth it. You know? Great, thank you. So, so one more here. I saw your hand, no? No. Um, back in 1977, I had this boyfriend who wanted me to call him Baba Nick. <laughs> and he was always going namaste. And, you know, he watched Lilius Yoga and you all the time. And he had this collection of books. And one was Handbook to Higher Consciousness. And I just, you know, began to look at that book. And there were 12 pathways. Twelve pathways to higher consciousness. And I remember the fourth one was, I will always remember that I have everything here and now to be happy unless I am fantasizing about the future or regretting the past. And right then, I knew that was true. And, you know, I broke up with Nick. <laughs> but, I, and I, but I kept his book. <laughs> yeah. And, but, and I, you know, I went through a lot of you know, difficult years, and I've made my way back here. I've made my way back here. And I live for that for that idea that I have everything I need right Mm. now.
And I really hope that I really can, just through practice and through this kind of intention, get there. Mm, very nice. Thank you. So I said one more, but I saw one more hand, so then we'll stop after. I uh, I changed careers and I uh, can people hear me? Okay, and I became a therapist. And I noticed that when I was a th- when I was listening to people, if I would think about other things, I w- I was lost. <laughs> so I had to really focus. So that was kind of the start of it. Um, and I came through to Buddhism via positive psychology. So I really loved all the emphasis on gratitude and on doing what you really love and going places. But there was some, something missing because I remember going to the beach one time and thinking, well, this is what I really love, so I should be really, really happy. But I was very worried about a client. I wasn't focused at all on the waves and on the beach. And I thought, hmm. And then um, I, I put my husband... Um, used to talk to me about uh, actually seeing you in Palo Alto. And uh, so we found, <laughs> we went here the first time about three years ago, and I just felt like I had sort of come home. There was a real peacefulness and real quiet, and I started listening a lot to, uh, you know, Adi Adama and um, things about, uh, you know, the sticky mind and getting caught up in thoughts instead of stepping back and realizing what you're doing. And... Um, and that really made a, a, a huge effect on, on me. And, I, and the more I could be present and just kind of step back from those thoughts, those sticky thoughts, then the more I could be with people. And I, I just kind of felt my uh, heart and mind open. And so we've decided to make much more of a commitment even, and we're moving closer, and we're, you know, it's just become very important to me in my life. Wonderful. Thank you very much. And uh, m- many things I could comment on what you said, but what stays in my mind the most was, was um, the difference between trying to focus to listen to your clients to letting go of what kept you from being present. And it's a lot easier to let go of what keeps you from being present than having all this work to be focused. <laughs> Great, thank you. Thank you all very much for that. Um, so... The, um, so the uh, refuge in the Buddha is meant to be refuge in a potential that you have, potential to be free, to be at peace, to be at home, to be settled, to not be neurotic, not be caught up. And, um, and it's a beautiful potential that uh, unfo- unfortunately is under, not tapped into enough in our world. But uh, it's can't, something we can tap into, something we can wake up to, something we can grow into. Uh, generally, in, in our tradition, we call it a gradual growth into it rather than some suddenly, oh, that's it, I have it, and I'm all set. But it's a slow development as we kind of set the direction, walk the path. And uh, one of the important uh, qualities or aspects of this path of practice, of the Buddha, of all this stuff, is, um, is the mutuality of our own life and the life of others. That we can't really walk this path for ourselves without some care for the people around us. And so the, uh, one of the uh, important kind of partners of refuge are the five precepts. 
and uh, the most important principle behind the five precepts, and really it's kind of maybe most epitomized by the first one, is the dedication to not causing harm, to be uh, to ahimsa, to being harmless, and uh, to make ourselves into a person who's safe for other people. So we're not intentionally going to harm other people. And, uh, and we do that not only because it's good for them, <laughs> but that um, it's also a protection and, and supportive for us. That if we're trying to kind of uh, awaken our Buddha nature, um, uh, we don't want to go against the current of that. We don't want to go against the grain, against the grain of that. To intentionally harm some, want to harm someone is, uh, you know, there's no Buddha nature in that. Uh, you cover it over then. You, and so you're going in the opposite direction of what you're trying to uncover. And so to live by the precepts is to enhance the possibility of keeping uncovering what's most precious or valuable in your own heart. And so, um, and so to live a life dedicated to non-harming, not to kill, uh, is uh, the first precept. And so a part of this uh, going for refuge is to align ourselves with these precepts. And I use the word align carefully because... Um, because the, the idea of committing to it is important, the idea of committing. But sometimes it, people have some uh, little trouble with the idea of commitment because it, they feel it has to be all or nothing. And um, of course it should be all or nothing. <laughs> but realistically, um, uh, we do the, the idea is we do our best we can. And it's a, it's a commitment to a practice, not to a commitment to, you know, being this way that... So uh, it's, it's sincere commitment and intention to live a life of non-harming. And then we do the best we can. And if we, f- if we end up causing harm, then rather than f- uh, being upset that we kind of broke the precept, uh, the idea is to reawaken the commitment to the precept. Take the, uh, take the experience we had and uh, use that as fuel to do better in the future. Because uh, you, want to, you want to live a life where the inner life and the outer life are in harmony. Uh, and so living by the precepts is a one way to do that. So one of the things that I would encourage you to think about for this next week uh, is um, the first precept, which is the precept not to kill. Um, the, um, the actual literal, literal wording of it is, is a little different than that. We all, all usually call it not to kill, but it's uh, literally uh, not to... Um, more like not to hit or not to harm, not to hurt. And, um, and so I like to say it's much broader than just not killing. It's applicable to all areas of our life, not to intentionally want to cause harm. So you might want to consider that and think about that and, and reflect on what you think. Don't come to the quick answers. Keep reflecting on it over and over again. What is the connection between the precept not to harm and what it means to go for refuge for you. Is there a connection for you? And, uh, and especially for this, uh, uh, for this week, first week, we'll divide up the weeks by Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. Um, uh, uh, what, is, uh, what does the Buddha mean for you? What does it represent for you? If the Buddha is an archetype or representation of something, that something that lives in your own heart, what is that that lives in your own heart? What is that? And, uh, and how does that relate to non-harming? And I'd encourage you to talk to other people and journal about it, reflect on it, think about it for the week. So we'll meet uh, two more times, and um, and then uh, 
and then the uh, fourth time the meeting is we'll have the ceremony here. The way the ceremony is done is we'll have a potluck together. And so it means that we'll, those of you who can come early, we'll start like at 6 o'clock or 6.30 or something, 6 o'clock, and have a potluck. And then we'll set, we'll set up this room here and have it uh, and do it. And after the potluck's cleaned up, we'll, we'll uh, gather in here and, and do the refuge ceremony. But I need to know, in order for the ceremony, um, starting next week, next two weeks, uh, I'd like to t- uh, get your names if you're interested in doing the ceremony because I'll give you a document and I, I write your name on the document. So I have to know how it's spelled and all that. And so, <laughs> and that, so I need to get that written down. So we'll do that, ne- that next time. And, um, and, um, and I guess it is being recorded. So if you do miss a week, um, you can listen to it on the recording or if you want to listen to it again. So do you have any questions for me or comments, concerns? Yes. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> so that's enough for then for this evening. So um, we will, in some ways, we'll, we'll go through as a community. And so that's part of the reason to have these discussions. And, uh, and also we'll do the, in the potluck and do the ceremony together as a group. So in that spirit, for those of you, just it would be nice to... Um, just go around the room and hear everybody's voice and everyone's name. So maybe you can just go around and, and then, we'll, then we'll end the evening. I'm Tanya. I'm Becky. I'm Patrick. Sharon. Krista. Edna. Paul. Min. Bonnie. David. Judy. Bob. Anne. Brenda. Margie. Sigal. Kathy. Michael. Judy. Mary Ellen. Lindsay, Valeria, Mare, Janet, Trudy, Noel, Rebecca, Tracy, Tovis, Diana. Jennifer, Anne, Dawn, Bill, Misha, Joe, Nana. Great, thank you all. Thank you all for this evening and I look forward to seeing you next week. <laughs>